Welcome to Women in Academia podcast with Irena, where I will interview female researchers to understand the challenges that women in academia are facing today. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to have on the show of Krista Lem Cassetari. She is a researcher at Marx Institute and uh, she was a committee member for my confirmation of candidature. And throughout my PhD studies, Krista was very supportive. And I can say that uh, Krista is one of the role models that I hope to follow. Hello, Krista. Thank you for agreeing to be my guest. How are you? Hi, Irina. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Krista, can you introduce yourself and tell me more about your current position? Yeah, so I'm um, Krista Lam Cassatari. I'm a research fellow at Western Sydney University in the Marx Institute for Brain Behavior and Development in the Baby Lab. Thank you for introducing yourself. Can you tell me more about your background and what brought you to the academia? So I have a background in psychology. I did my honors in psychology in the baby lab and that's where I I really um, fell in love with research I guess I've always been really interested in how things work and the processes and so I went on to do a PhD uh, in developmental psychology where I really got to look into how the early environment impacts early language development in infants and that just really fascinated me to try and understand the little bits of the puzzle for how they come from, you know, knowing nothing really about language and having experience and they're immersed in it from even before they're born to rapidly, you know, moving and walking and talking and becoming little human beings. I agree. It's amazing how babies quickly learn language. Um, Yeah. And so I think it's really fascinating that we can do research on it and we have families and members of the public that come in to contribute to science to help us to unpack, you know, what what are the key ingredients to understanding how kids develop, what helps them to reach their optimal development, and, you know, how can we support them just to, to be healthy. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell me what are the biggest challenges you have faced and obstacles you have to overcome on your journey? And if you had to start over, would you do something differently? And what would you do differently? Trying to decide which path to take, particularly doing things like a psychology degree. You know, are you going to go on a clinical path or are you going to go on a research path? And I think it's really important to know that even though you select one path, it doesn't mean that you can't go back or blend the paths at some stage in your future. Um, particularly these days, I think the collaboration between um, different teams is really key to understanding all of the aspects that underpin, you know, early childhood development. Some of the challenges that I have faced, you know, I moved countries for a postdoc, mm-hmm. um, but postdocs are generally grant dependent. So when the grant's running out or if members of your team move locations or retire, then at times projects may have to finish sooner than their deadlines, start planning for which path am I going to take now, where I've had mentors retire or move locations, I've had to decide whether I was going to continue on that path um, or whether I was going to change directions with my research or apply for other things. And I moved back to Sydney and I applied for a a major grant with a colleague overseas and we got it. So I I got to keep doing what I wanted to do and I guess I was lucky. There, There are grants that I've applied for that haven't gotten and that can be a challenge because sometimes you're you know, really hoping for it and you're lining up what you think will be 
the right career path to, to conduct research that's going to tell, you know, a nice story in each stage of the story, but they don't always come through. Grants are hard to get. And so it's about just stepping back, having a look at what else is out there and just carrying on. If you do research, there's always going to be rejections, whether it's from journals where you have to rewrite aspects of a paper and resubmit them or whether it's from grants. I've also worked part time. So I am a mum of two now. Um, I've got two very busy boys and they're, they're wonderful, but you know, being an infant researcher, you know a lot about early childhood development. And so finding a balance between your work life and your home life can be quite a challenge and what their work life balance is and trying to navigate what is something that's going to be acceptable for you and your family might not be acceptable to other people in your team or in your organization and navigating that space can be pretty tricky. Was maternity leave a challenge in your career? Uh, maternity leave is a challenge because sometimes it can kind of slow things down. Sometimes when you take maternity leave it doesn't necessarily come at a time where it fits perfectly into your schedule of data collection. Mm -hmm. um, so it might slow your data collection or it might come at the end of a phase of data collection. I guess mine mine fit in quite well. I was doing some longitudinal studies and so I guess it helped me carry on doing longitudinal studies because I was able to extend my grant. I was my grant was from a Swedish foundation and they are fantastic um, in terms of supporting parents. And so I just got an automatic, we had to fill out an application um, and explain everything that was going on, but I got an automatic extension of 12 months on my grant. And we actually requested 15 months because I took a 15 month maternity leave because it was my first son. Yeah, so that, that was a big relief knowing that mm -hmm. the grant wasn't just going to expire. Um, and that gave us a bit more freedom to make sure that we were able to carry on with the data collection. It did mean that, you know, um, for that particular project, we were we were giving the participants uh, leaner devices, which are a little recorder so that you can record what the language environment is for the child. And so they wear this little device in a vest for a day and then you need to collect these recorders. And so I was driving around Sydney my maternity leave um, with my son but it meant we got to visit all sorts of random suburbs that we wouldn't normally have driven to um, and sometimes he'd have a nap so that was great and we'd sort of go and pick up a leaner device and um, because it was a longitudinal study the families were wonderful and they were interested in seeing you know how my little guy was developing and what it was like being on maternity leave and I was getting to see their kids grow up at the same time. So I guess, you know, it was a challenge, but there's silver lining to it. You know, working working on an international grant and being uh, the sole person running that grant within your lab can be challenging at times because you can't just have a meeting when you want during two different time zones. And so I think it's really important to spend some time working out what systems are going to work for you. So working out you know, a particular time that you can meet weekly or fortnightly where you know that you can just automatically check in with each other. And then, of course, working out how you can pass documents from one another. Um, you know, it might be that at the end of your days, you send an email with an update because that means that they're going to get it in their mornings and can carry on when you're setting up projects um, to make sure that you have the same components in both of your different labs. Um, I know for us it worked out better for me to stay up later in the evening after I put the children to bed because
because my colleague found it easier to get up really early in the morning before she had to do a school rush and, and things like that. And so that's just our system. But I mean, each to their own, really. But knowing that time, at times it will change and just being able to check in with each other and, and, and adapt um, I think that's the most important thing. And and thinking about challenges, particularly for women, I think there's a challenge for everybody. Um, the economic climate can be quite tricky to navigate. You know, grants change all the time and the topics that uh, receive the most funding change all the time. So being able to navigate that system and learn what your specialty is more likely to get fun, what type of grants your specialty is more likely to get funded by is something that's really important so that you can build up a, a track record in that area and identify collaborators to be able to achieve uh, your goals. With COVID, I mean, it's going to get even harder to get grants, I think. And so thinking about building your track record and identifying grants is something that will need a bit more attention. Mm-hmm. Every woman has different commitments and schedules in and out of the office. How do you manage your work-life balance? It's really great to be talking to you. And I, I think that's a really good question. Wondering how to get a work-life balance in academia is something that there is unfortunately no holy grail for everyone. I think it's really an individual thing. Something that I get asked a lot is, you know, when's the right time to have a family? And I think If you plan to have a family, understanding that there is no right time for you to do it is is the take-home message. It really depends on you and your circumstances. I also think that it's really important to have a support network. And so that's something that you build uh, from the time that you start doing your undergraduate degrees because you need a support network to bounce ideas off each other. Uh, You can offer each other emotional support uh, and allow yourself you know, to be able to go out with these people and to disconnect from the day-to-day work and just enjoy life. Uh, Because when you can disconnect from work, it means that you'll be fresh when you are doing work and you'll be more creative in what you're doing. I think over the years, I've been learning how important it is to put in procedures around the hours that you work, especially if you are on a part-time contract. In academia, it can be really easy to get stuck in an on-mode all the time Uh, and this can be exhausting especially when you do have a family or you do have things going on in life outside of work that demand a lot of your attention you might have older parents that you're caring for or or other people that you know need your support and in my case it was babies and toddlers who need a lot of my undivided attention when I have my non-work days so putting in barriers around your days off and making sure that they become days off is something that I am still learning to do at times, but it's really important. There's many occasions that I haven't been so good at this uh, and phases that are just a blur of work. So making sure that when you are on leave and on holidays, put some boundaries around it and, and enjoy yourself. And that will give you a fresh perspective when you do return to work. I know one way to blend your worlds is when it comes to conference time. And so I have presented a conference when I was wearing my son. He was only two months old and I was on maternity leave. And the conference, thankfully, was in my hometown. So I wouldn't have to fly there or pay for accommodation for the whole family. And I really wanted to make sure that 
I was able, because it was sort of the start of a, of a big project, I wanted to make sure that I could get some peer evaluation and just see how it was going and to meet up with colleagues. And so luckily, my conference slot was later in the morning, so I wasn't going to be stuck in the peak hour rush to get there. To make it easier, my husband took the day off. And it did turn into a family trip because I was pretty exhausted with a two-month-old. And he drove us there because he wanted to be on backup and wait in the wings to be able to uh, take our son so that I could go and present the conference by myself and, and know that he would be there when he needed to be breastfed and so on. But it actually worked out that after he'd been fed and changed and all the, all the things that need to be done, um, he fell asleep on me and when I was trying to hand him over to my husband, he was stirring and getting a little bit fidgety. So uh, I ended up putting him into a carrier and he went straight to sleep, of course. So he made the choice that, why don't you wear me? And so we just went with it. And he slept through the whole presentation, continued sleeping through question time, and I was able to continue chatting with colleagues and people that had questions, and he carried on sleeping. So he was a superstar. And I'm really glad that I did something like that because I've never seen it before. And I think it's important in situations like that when you have a two-month-old, um, you can actually blend those worlds together to get the best of both worlds and not stop yourself from doing something like a conference presentation just because you have a two-month-old baby and you haven't really slept properly for two months. That's such a cool Thank story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it is good. And, and I think that it was an interesting thought when I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I did, I did think, well, he's gone to sleep now, so I, I'm going to be on in like 10 minutes. Should I try and give him to someone else or should I just wear him because I know he should stay asleep and, you know, all these things did go through my head and I just thought, well, in my gut, I was like, if he just stays on me, he'll sleep the whole time. I'll give the presentation. I'll be there for question time. And then I, I'm glad that I listened to my gut because it, it was right. Mm -hmm. I just wore him, presented. I was there for question time. I, I was able to hang around for questions afterwards out in the foyer and, you know, um, That, that, was, that was important to be able to present that work and to be able to engage with other people um, about it, um, you know, and help refine components of it for, for future work. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's important not to think that just because you have children, you can't do these things, mm -hmm. but obviously you need, you need support um, or you need to have some, some plans for potential support should you need it. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell me more about your research? Uh, when you talk to babies, you automatically use this highly affective, intonated speech style called infant-directed speech. And um, we know that, um, we now know, I guess, from research from myself and from others, that when your baby is born with a hearing loss, it, it may change the way that mothers speak, even if they have uh, hearing aids or cochlear implants um, fitted. So it's really interesting to see that. Um, you know, parents can be really responsive to differences in their children based on different levels of sensory input that they get and how they contribute to early language development. And that's something that I'm doing with Dr. Iris Karina Schwartz in um, Stockholm because we know that 
um, parental leave is that are over in Sweden. Um, so we're really curious as to how speech input from mothers and fathers might differ. And if it does differ across the first years of life, does this actually relate to any differences in early language development of their children? And so that's one of the studies that we're working on and have been working on. We've finished all the data collection for that and we're just um, doing analysis and writing up papers at the moment. And so that's something to stay tuned for because we're really um, interested to see what the sort of longer term impacts might be in the families that we've been following up from six months to two years of age. Have you found any differences between parents in Australia and parents in Sweden? So, so far, um, an interesting finding is that it doesn't matter if they're parents in Australia or parents in Sweden, um, but the more input that comes from the male voice um, to a baby around six months of age, the bigger their receptive vocabulary was at 11 months of age. And so it didn't, didn't matter if it was Australian dads or Swedish dads, but just if they were exposed to extra male voice, then their, the parent reports on the vocabulary checklist indicated they understood more words. So we um, argue that it's just that the baby's being exposed to more speech and I guess mm -hmm. speech in different ways because dads talk a little bit differently to moms. They have mm -hmm. different different pitch levels and all sorts. Yeah, it can also add more variety. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you can part of early learning is, you know, learning through reinforcement and so being reinforced by different people in, to wire that in more permanently. It sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to hear uh, what would be after two years of age. Looking at the effects of postnatal depression as well on early language development. You know, so many mothers are experiencing postnatal depression and anxiety. And I think that it's an area of research that really needs a lot more attention um, and needs more policy because there's women all over the world experiencing this. And it's not just the women who experience it, it's their families who experience you know, the repercussions of the mum experiencing these feelings and we don't know, is there long-term effects of this on the child's development? Um, how postnatal depression impacts the early infant-directed speech that parents use with their babies. Do you have any results so far? Parents who are experiencing symptoms of depression do tend to speak a little bit differently. So their overall pitch and the coochie-coo content of their infant-directed speech um, was reduced compared to mothers who weren't experiencing symptoms of postnatal depression. And the babies in one of my studies who were around five to six months of age um, didn't tend to babble as much during a short play session um, than babies with mums who weren't experiencing postnatal depression. And Sounds very interesting and very important, I think it can have very important practical implications. Yeah. Can you tell me what are your hopes for your future research? My, my hopes are that we can really unpack more about, you know, how we can support healthy and optimal development in children, you know, how nature and nurture combine to shape this early development and are there key factors that we need to put extra emphasis or extra support, healthy neural development, In the first few years of baby's life, that's when the brain's so busy building up its wiring system. And we know that, you know, the more activity that they have, it can create more of these electrical connections and it can affect 
how many are formed. If they're getting a lot of repetitive and a lot of consistent stimulation, that's healthy stimulation, and it's going to strengthen these connections so that they don't drop away and, and you know, kids are going to, to learn. My hope is that I do infant research because when you talk and you sing to babies, you know, you expose them to language and they learn how to take turns, they learn how to have conversations um, and they learn to communicate with others who can make sure that their biological needs are met but also their, mm-hmm. you know, communication and social needs are met. There's so many different things that parents and caregivers can do in these early stages of life. It's, it's the whole village that's raising the child. So understanding all of these components together influence early development to make sure that everyone can get the best start to life. Like mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's why I enjoy all the, the juggling that I do to, to stay an infant researcher while I have young kids. The importance of supporting parents um, so that they can nurture this development and, and learn how, you know, they're, they're the experts in their child development. I agree with you. It's a very nice message. And yes, I think it's important on, not only to meet um, children's um, biological needs, but also social, emotional, communicative. Um, and it's just reminding you, you know, the simple things. Those simple things lead to fantastic connections with your kids. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell me what are the top issues you see women in academia face today? I guess some of the top issues that, that women face in academia these days are the work-life balance. You know, it's always, it's, it's always a struggle to find out um, what's going to be the best way to manage work and, and life. And I guess it, it's different for everyone. I've got two kids. I've worked part-time. I've gotten multiple grants. So I'm publishing slower than what I would like to. But, you know, my kids are happy and healthy. So mm-hmm. that's really important too. So it's finding, I guess, what works for you to, to get you through it and for you to be satisfied with where you're at. I think finding a good mentor can be a challenge as well. In all industries, I guess, you've got to make sure that you find yourself a good mentor. And it doesn't have to be someone from within your department. I've actually met mentors outside of my department who have had interesting things to say about the way that their systems work, which can help you reflect on the way that your systems work and which can be insightful. So I think um, making sure that you find yourself a good mentor. Um, Funding is definitely a challenge. You know, at times there's shrinking pots. I've watched colleagues sort of completely change their career path based on funding pots. Yeah, I guess you, you can make choices about whether you're going to do that or whether you're going to, you know, stick to whatever path you're on and, and just find other ways to be able to keep doing that. Thank you for that. Can you tell me what is the one piece of advice you would give to a young girl, woman thinking about academia or to girl, woman just starting out in academia? I think if you're passionate about it, then just do it. Um, I think something that's really that that I've really reflected on for the last couple of years, being a mom and working part time, and you know trying to to do it all, is that if you have a passion for it, if you can find something that you're really passionate about, no matter what hurdles come up, you can do it. Make sure that you find yourself a supportive network. Your your peers as you're studying are the first point. Um, if you come across some great, you know, lecturers or or researchers along the way, then hang on to them because they can be really good sounding boards or, um, you know, in the future they might be a collaborator. As you're studying, think about 
where you'd like to go, try out different things if you're not quite sure if that's the direction you'd like to go, if there's a subject in it um, or a course in it or a conference in it, then give it a go because that way you'll get to see, you know, if it really agrees with um, what you're passionate about. Such a great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thanks. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening.